0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the Book of Luke, chapter 19, this morning. While you're turning there, you know one of the surest signs that uh, we have crossed that line from uh, being a kid to being an adult uh, is uh, being a part of what we would call the classic family car trip. How many of you have ever done that? Right? Uh, you know, you find yourself in the situation, go, "Wow!" You know, I. This is really a sign I'm really becoming adulterated here. I'm the guy behind the wheel driving along, you know, taking the family, maybe from Tucson here to San Diego. And it's very exciting at first blush, but then you start to remember things like how you pestered your parents when they were driving on one of these journeys by saying, are we there yet? How many of you have heard that from the back seat? Or how much longer is it going to be? Well, you know, I've discovered uh, taking a page from Parenting 101 that uh, I will not crush the spirits of my children by saying things like, we got six hours. (laughs) You might as well say six centuries to a kid at that time, right? Instead, I'll respond by saying, well, uh, it'll be a little while. And I say, well, how much longer? I'll say, well, you know, and uh, forgive uh, playing fast and loose a bit with the truth. And I say, well, it'll be, oh, around 15 minutes or so. (laughs) You see, from the kid mind, I remembered, you know, 15 minutes seemed like an eternity anyway. And that's more than enough time for a kid to lose focus and get distracted with other things. But, you know, it's interesting to me that that whole are we there yet or how much longer? You know, we all know what it's like as parents to hear that when we're behind the wheel of a car, but would it surprise you to learn that God actually hears that from his kids? Uh, Consider what King David wrote in Psalm 13. He said this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Now, I know for some of you, when you hear words like that, you're like, wow, how did that make it into the Bible? But if the Bible was just some sort of rah-rah, feel-good, positive mental attitude-building book, we wouldn't encounter these searching, soul-searing questions like we do in the Word of God. And sooner or later, no matter how spiritual you are, no matter how many Bible verses you've memorized, no matter how adept you are at, at theology, Sooner or later, you're going to find yourself saying that to God. How long, Lord? Do you have something in your life that fits that how long category? How long is this condition I'm in going to continue? How long is it going to be until, Lord, you show the slightest inclination of of listening to or responding to to this prayer request I've brought before you that is the desire of the desire of my heart. How long till I see your mighty hand and outstretched arm actually working in my life? How long will it be day after day after day where it seems like, well, the heavens are shut and no one's responding? How long, O oh Lord? How Can we make it through those how long times? Well, I've come to believe that the difference between those who hang on and those who hang in and those who hang up on their Christian faith is learning how to deal with those times where God answers our prayers in a way that probably is the most challenging we will ever experience. Oh, God answers every prayer, don't get me wrong, but He reserves the right to answer our prayers in one of three ways yes, no, and of course, wait. How do you hang in there when you gotta wait? Well, I believe the difference between those who make it and those who break it during those times is confidence confidence in God's perfect timing. God is never a moment too early and never a moment too late. And in Luke chapter 19, we are going to see just how literal that truth truly is, demonstrated in no less a situation than Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We pick things up in Luke chapter 19 and verse 28. There uh, we read these words, and when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, the drama of this moment shouldn't it escape us. This is Jesus' last journey into Jerusalem. And notice how Luke describes this. He says that he was going up to Jerusalem. If you've ever gone with us on one of our tours of Israel, you know that Jerusalem is situated geographically in such a way that it is virtually impossible to get there from anywhere in Israel without going up. The mountains surround Jerusalem. It's like the Lord surrounds his people, we are told, in Psalm 125. And so Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem at this particular point. In his ministry. Now, uh, the, the drama of all this, obviously, is Jesus has been in and out of Jerusalem a number of times in his life. But this final ascent, the, the 17-mile road, if you will, that goes from the city of Jericho into Jerusalem, this would be the last time that Jesus would walk that highway before his appointment at the cross. Literally, Jesus knew that every step he took was one step closer. To Mount Calvary. And boy, the pressure was beginning to build. So uh, was the excitement that was surrounding Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. But but also, even along with the pressure, all the, the hysteria of the crowds, there was something else that was going on. God was about to do an amazing miracle, arguably one of the most amazing miracles in Jesus' ministry. And it starts. Uh, by two disciples being given a rather interesting errand. Verse 29 says, And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, and where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord Has need of it. Now, we run a real risk at this point of Sunday school 101ing this whole situation. First of all, we're told two disciples were given this instruction by Jesus. We aren't told who these disciples were you know, we tend to fill in the blanks and say, oh, it must have been Peter and James or John or some highfalutin, high-profile disciple, you know, one of the inner circle. That could have been. For all we know, it could have been James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot. We're just not told who these disciples were. But these disciples were given a really interesting errand to run by Jesus. Go into this village that's opposite us. As you go in, you're going to find a donkey's colt tied there, a colt that no one has ever ridden on before. Lose the colt, bring it to me, and if anyone asks you what you're doing, just say the Lord has need of it. Okay, yeah, sure. Lord, great. We'll, we'll go ahead and do that. And I imagine at first blush, if they're like us, when the Lord calls you to do something first, you're excited about it. You know, God's given you something to do. how well, well, we can actually do something for the Lord here. It's going to be great. And, but as it, they started down the road, they, they, they started getting bombarded, like we do, with those two word questions that can sometimes derail our faith and keep us from seeing God do miracles in our life. As they drew nearer and nearer to this appointment with a donkey, uh, the, the fact of the matter was they probably looked at each other and, and started asking questions like, uh, well, uh, what if we go down there and someone asks us about this donkey? And what if we say the Lord has needed them, and that just doesn't, uh, you know, feed the bulldog, so to speak. What 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 if... We end up being the feature on Jerusalem PD Live. Donkey rustling ring busted outside of Jerusalem. Religious fanatics claim Messiah told them to do it. Oh, okay, let's let's go to the tape. I'm not really sure that uh, they were thinking all of those things, but I'm sure the what ifs and what abouts were starting to run through their mind at that particular time. What if? This thing goes south. What if it goes off the rails? What about the fact that that that, that we we just don't know how all of this is going to come together? You know, the the, the fact of the matter was Jesus told him to go ahead and do this. Now there there's a debate as to how this setup happened. Was it set up? because Jesus had sent messengers ahead, that he had friends in this particular village, and they were going to provide for him this cold, and it was all very secularly explained. That's possible. It's also possible that this was entirely a supernatural event that was taking place, because, again, Jesus was coming from Galilee. He hadn't uh, been in that area long enough to set something like this up. We really don't know whether we could explain it by Jesus, again, logistically working out these details, or by divine intervention. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus said, go down there, you're going to find this colt tied. No one's ever sat on this colt, this donkey's colt. Untie it, and if anybody asks you, just say, the Lord has need of it. So verse 32, so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were losing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you losing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of them. Now, again, try not to Sunday School 101 this too much. This was a pretty dramatic moment. I mean, to put it in a modern setting, imagine if I came up to you after service and I said, Hey, could you do me a big favor? You know, oh, sure. I'll be happy to do you a favor. What, what do you need? I want you to go to Marana. I want you to go down off of I-10 and Twin Peaks Road, and right there by the entrance to the discount mall, you're going to see a Honda Fit, little tiny car there, (laughs) Honda Fit sitting there that has zero miles on it. No one's ever driven it. The keys are in it. I want you to go get that Honda Fit and bring it back here, and if anyone asks you what you're doing with their car, just say, hey, Scott's got need of it. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. That's exactly what's going on. The Lord has need of it? Let's see if this thing works. I'm sure they're going, okay, here we go. Cops on the way. But we are told... They brought him to Jesus. In other words, they brought this donkey to Jesus. They threw their own clothes on the colt, and then they sat Jesus on him. As they went, many spread their clothes on the road. Now, here we see something really important. I just want to take a moment to emphasize this point of application here because this is really key. What do you do when a situation has come your way You've done everything that you can logistically and responsibly to take care of this situation. You've prayed over the situation. You've scoured the scriptures as far as the situation is concerned. And all you can do is wait. What do you do? Well, here's, here's what I would suggest. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to this when you don't know what to do next. And, and isn't that the greatest challenge? When we find ourselves somewhere between making a passionate prayer request to God and seeing it fulfilled, when we're in that space, the, the greatest challenge is, what do I do now? What do I do while I'm waiting? Here's what you do. When you don't know what to do next, always fall back on what you do now. Do what the Lord has called you to do. Simply find yourself faithful right where you are. You know, a lot of times when we talk about the timing of God and and, and how God's timing and our timing are two different things and and, and how do we, we hang on and hang in instead of hanging up on our faith, one of the things that we forget is this. If you've prayed about it, you've put it in God's hands That's all you can do. Just make it your business to walk hand in hand with the Lord today. It's all you can do. You know, there's an old spiritual that says, I'm under the spout where the glory comes out, right? How can you make sure that you're in that place? How can you make sure that when you've prayed, you're not going to miss that answer to prayer? Here's how you do it. You don't put your spiritual life on hold until that particular prayer request, until that particular need has been met. You look at each and every day as an opportunity to find your refuge in the shadow of God's wings, to walk faithfully in his word. And as you do that, you're going to discover that God is going to guide you. Now, now I know that sounds really basic and elemental, but don't miss it. You can't be in God's will unless you're willing to do God's will. And one of the great reasons I think we miss out on so many blessings of God is not that God wouldn't like to give them to us, but He's not going to bless our mess either. He's going to bring the parade to a halt until He deals with the issues of the heart. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He's not chintzy. He's not cheap. He doesn't hold back on his blessings, but he's also a perfect father. And he knows when sometimes giving us what we want isn't really giving us what we need. God has some lessons that can only be taught to us through the crucible of simple obedience. And, and if we want to overcome the yeah, buts, uh, and, and I'm sure if you and I had been those disciples in that situation, being called to go get this donkey by Jesus, the yeah, buts could have easily sidelined us, and the what abouts, you know, the, the, the simple two-word questions that cause us so much spiritual damage. How do you overcome that? You, you don't go for the yeah, buts. You just say, okay, I don't care about the yeah, buts. I'm simply going to do what you've called me to do. I'm simply going to be found faithful with what I do know, and I'm going to leave in God's hands those things I don't know. I mean, think about how powerful this is. I'll tell you, sooner or later in this world, uh, we're going to run into problems in our marriages. There's going to be difficulties, disagreements. Sometimes uh, they range from minor skirmishes to Hatfield and McCoy-like feuds. You know, we get it all around here. And sometimes people will say, well, what's God's will for my marriage? How can I make sure that I'm right where God wants me to be? I've been praying for my marriage. What should I do in the meantime? Follow the directions. Stop and consider these two powerful words and instructions that we find in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. Ladies, if you're praying for your marriage right now, if you're praying for someone else's marriage right now, you want to pray for the woman in the marriage? Pray that they would decide to simply follow these instructions. They would allow their husband to be the spiritual leader in the home. They would submit to his spiritual leadership. They would be a living demonstration to this world, if the world wants to find out how God's people, his church, lovingly submit to Jesus' spiritual leadership. They should be able to find out by observing you practically and personally doing the same thing. Now, I realize that as soon as people hear this, the yeah buts come up. Yeah, but that was written 2,000 years ago. You can't expect. You're arguing by the clock, Right? God's truth is true at 11 o'clock, and it's also true at 12 o'clock. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's true in our day. This is God's plan. You want to be under the spout where the glory comes out? You want to be in that place where God answers your prayers? Here's what you do. Ladies, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. You want God's best for your marriage? Don't just theorize it. Do it. As the old Nike ad put it, just do it. Husbands, then, well, you know, I'm in this situation, you know, my, my marriage is, is, is really you know, hanging by a thread. What should I do? Sacrificially love your wife. But, but, but what if? What if I get trampled? What if she doesn't respond? Uh, what if? You can what if your way right out of the blessings of God. Here's the deal. Instead of saying what about, just say, all right, this is what God has called me to do. today. Lord, by your grace, through the power of your spirit, I ask you to give me that power to love my wife like you love the church. You know, I've done an awful lot of premarital counseling and postmarital counseling in my days in ministry, but I've never seen a husband sit in my office and say, you know what really drives me crazy about my wife? She just respects me so much. It just bothers me that she would respect me like that. And and, and that she wants me to be the spiritual leader. That really frosts me that she does something like that. I've never heard that. I've never had a couple in my office and had a wife look at me and say, you know what really bugs me about this guy? He sacrificially loves me like Jesus does. (laughs) You can't possibly know how irritating that is. I've never heard that. You know, I had a seminary prophet said our biggest problem Isn't spiritual IQ, it's spiritual I do, right? Jesus told these guys, go down there, get the donkey. Anybody says anything to you? Say, the Lord has need of it. They just did it, and it put them front row center, and what I believe is arguably one of the most amazing manifestations and fulfillments of biblical prophecy you'll find in Scripture. Notice, they brought him to Jesus, they threw Then they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. Uh, Miracle number one that we see in this this process. Jesus sits on this donkey, and the donkey does not object. Notice, no one's ever sat on this donkey before. Any of you who know anything about horseback riding knows this, right? Horses don't come out the chute waiting for a saddle, right? Uh, Breaking a horse, right? Is a necessary process. Why? Because if you don't break that horse, that horse is gonna break you. They, they don't take kindly or naturally to some human being coming and jumping on top of them. Yet this donkey does. Jesus gets on the donkey, no problem. Why? Because that mule catch this knew his master. Do we? Stop and think about that for just a second. How mule-like are we in our response to God? Truth be told, right? I love what Psalm 32 says about this. Psalm 32 is this wonderful prayer of David describing the process of coming back to God after a horrible spiritual face plant. And God responds by saying to David something that just resonates with my heart, and I hope it resonates with you. God says to him, I will teach you and train you, In the way you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check, else they will not come near to you. God says, Don't make me fit you for a bit. Do you understand how bits and bridles work with horses? If you've never done any horseback riding, you don't understand that. You just assume, well, you know, it's just sort of the steering wheel. You know why a horse will respond to a rider pulling on one of the reins? Because they stick this stinking metal bar in the horse's mouth, and it's pulling on the horse's gums. You heard the expression, champing on the bit. Some horses figure out that if they get that... bit in their teeth, it's not going to hurt their gums anymore. And then they become much more difficult to manage. Sometimes the only way to get the horse to go where it needs to go is to yank on it a little bit. Now, that's not the ideal. A, A superbly trained horse, a horse that has really worked with its rider, gets to a point where you don't need to use the bit and bridle anymore. Did you know that? it's just a nudge like a nudge not from the hands on the bit and bridle but even just from the leg just like that the horse knows because that horse is so in tune with his rider that's the kind of relationship god wants to have with us Obviously, God has a good, acceptable, and perfect will. He's going to get you there. He promised that He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish what He starts. And you and I are going to get where God wants us to go. We can get there kicking and screaming. We can get there with a bit and bridle in our mouths. We can get there with some gum irritation. Or we can get there... Lovingly, willingly, peacefully. That's God's preference. (laughs) This mule had figured it out. (laughs) Messiah's on my back. (laughs) All I need to know, talk about a miracle. There you go. They threw their clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Now, that's another significant uh, uh, statement the Scripture makes. Why did they put their clothes on the road before Jesus? Well, I just sort of assume they did. Was there any scriptural significance to that at all? A lot, actually. Uh, You know, there's a fascinating stretch of scripture where we are told about a uh, particular low life in the history of uh, the, the people of Israel. It was the rise of the reign of King Ahab and his descendants in the northern 12 tribes. You recall that Ahab... Uh, was pretty much henpecked and run by his wife, this non-Jewish individual from Sidon named Jezebel. She was the one who brought in Baal worship and Elijah and Jezebel had these Titanic clashes and so on. Uh, you can certainly read about it in the book of Second Kings, the 1 and the first and second Kings. But the the fascinating thing as far as putting out these branches or putting out these clothes before uh, Jesus uh, is, is this. The only time in Scripture we see this happening is when a fellow by the name of King Jehu was anointed by God to be king of Israel. He was not only anointed by God to be king of Israel, he was given a, a specific mission by God. He was to take out the descendants of Ahab and Jezebel. Because they had completely gone beyond the pale as far as idolatry and oppressing God's people was concerned. Jehu was to clean house. And when the people saw Jehu coming, they said, man, let's put down our clothes and say, come on in. We welcome you to come on in and get out of power. These oppressive foreigners. Do you think that was somehow going through the minds of those people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem? They had their ideas about who Messiah was going to be for sure. And they also had some ideas about how things were being run in Israel at that point. You see, they were not only under the power of the Romans. Who was the one who was the hands-on administrator in that area? The Herods. You who are Sunday School 101 grad know something about the Herods. They weren't even Jews. They were Edomites. They were foreigners. They were like Jezebels in the eyes of of the people of Israel, they're going, oh man, maybe Jesus is the Messiah, and finally we'll be out from under the thumb of all of these horrible oppressors, these foreigners. So they spread their clothes, just like the people of Israel did in Second Kings chapter nine, when Jehu came on the scene. Notice as well, we are told that they also took palm branches. We are told this in Mark chapter eleven, verses seven through eight. This was a picture of uh, the idea of the Feast of Tabernacles was tied into all of this. It was a picture of, of this uh, idea of praise and worship. It was a picture of victory, believe it or not. In the book of Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, we are told that those who overcome the Antichrist in the tribulation period will be given palm branches before the Lord to worship the Lord during that time. So very significant gestures and details. It was like the people along the road were throwing in with Jesus, throwing their clothes on the ground, saying, we believe you're the Messiah. They're holding these palm branches up in the air and worshiping God. It was their way of saying, me, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that was a really radical turn of events, I want to tell you, because we're told in passages like John chapter 9 and verse 22 that the religious leaders had decided that anybody who confessed Jesus as Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. These people didn't care. We're in. Burn the boats. No turning back. We're going to put our faith and trust in this Jesus. Then we're told in verse 37, as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, a couple things going on here. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey's colt. That is a powerful fulfillment of a prophecy made some 500 years before the time of Christ. In the book of Zechariah, Chapter 9 and verse 9, we are told, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! He is just and having salvation. How would they recognize him? Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Two ways for a king to enter a city. If he entered on a war horse, it meant he was clean in house. But if a king came riding humbly on a donkey... It meant that he came to bring peace. The offer of peace with God was being made prophetically through Jesus at this particular moment. But that wasn't the only prophecy that was being fulfilled. The crowds along the way were quoting Scripture. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm 118 and verse 24. And we're going to see how significant that reference is in just a moment. And some of the Pharisees, verse 39... Called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why were the Pharisees freaking out? Well, the Pharisees were professional freak out artists. They didn't really need a whole lot of the prompting to freak out about anything that Jesus was doing. But understand, the Pharisees, although we tend to, you know, paint them in you know kind of the melodramatic things you know they'd be the uh, snidely whiplashes the evil guys you know with the stov- stove top hats and the mustache going ah, 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 you know and they, you know we, we tend to think of them that way some of them certainly were the majority of them were they really didn't believe that they needed any kind of forgiveness and reconciliation with God they felt they were a credit to the kingdom and holding up their end of the deal they're very religious people we're offended at the idea of the inference that possibly there could be something wrong between them and God. And we've met some of their disciples uh, in Christian churches, people that walk around with this aura about them saying, oh, isn't it wonderful that I'm a part of God's kingdom? Oh, isn't it? How did the kingdom of God ever get along without me? How did this church ever function before I came on the scene? Well, this church is all right, but I think, you know, with me around here, it's going to be even better you know, this, this kind of pharisaical holier-than-thou attitude. And, and certainly there were those who had that that rejected Jesus outright. Then there were uh, seekers, if you will, curiosity people, people that realized that what they were doing with their Pharisee-based spirituality uh, wasn't really satisfying to them. It wasn't filling the emptiness in their heart. They were like the rich young ruler. And so they wanted to continue to follow Jesus and, and see what he was teaching and find out what he was really all about. Then obviously there were spies. There were individuals just waiting for Jesus to make a slip. And boy, you want to talk about a spiritual party fell. These disciples, waving branches, throwing clothes on the ground like welcoming Jehu into Jerusalem, waving these palm branches in the air and quoting this Psalm 118, the psalm that was sung, by the way, at every Passover Seder to commemorate God's great physical deliverance of the people of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. They're applying it to Jesus. Who does this guy think he is? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. (laughs) Now let me ask you a question. Was Jesus whooping here? Was he just giving way to hyperbole and an emotionalism and just getting caught up in the swell of what was happening with this crowd? I don't believe so. I believe that Jesus could not have been more literal if he had tried. Why? Understand, prophecy was being fulfilled at that moment. Not just the mode that Jesus was entering into Jerusalem, not just the music that was being sung by those greeting Him, but the moment was also incredibly significant. Why do I say this? This is a whole Bible study in and of itself. You want to explore this, get our teaching on Daniel chapter 9. But I want to give you the Cliff Notes version of what's going on here. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25 and 26, we are told that God had a purpose and a plan for the people of Israel. The biggest purpose and plan was bringing Messiah to them. As a matter of fact, God was so interested in people not missing Messiah when He came, catch this, He even told them the day He'd arrive. What do I mean by that? Well, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25 says that from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, Mashiach Nagid, will be... i uh, <laughs> spacing out here. Uh, <laughs> let me get back to this here. Will be 69 sevens or 483 years. Dr. Harold Honer of Dallas Theological Seminary calculated exactly what this uh, time frame was all about. We know when this decree was issued, by the way. It was this de- issued by a Persian king by the name of Artaxerxes. We meet him in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 and 2. We see this decree being issued there. We even know the day that the decree was issued. March 5th, 444 B.C. Now, if you take these 483 years... Reckon them by the Jewish calendar of 360 days. That comes down to, according to Dr. Honer, 173,880 days. From March 5th, 444 BC, 173,880 days brings you to, now don't gloss out on there because this is amazing, March 30th, 33 BC, or the day. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey's colt. Anybody who read their book of Daniel could have counted down the time to Jesus' arrival. To the day. It wouldn't surprise me, in fact, I think it's likely, that it was 173,880 days to the minute from the time Artaxerxes signed his name on the decree to that moment when Jesus entered on the donkey's colt. And so when Jesus said, if these be silent, the stones will cry out, bring it back to Psalm 118. The words here are really powerful. Verse 19 says this, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected, tell your followers to be silent, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I know we sing that lily, this is the day, this is the day the Lord has made. Don't miss this. When Psalm 118 said, this is the day which the Lord has made, he was saying, no, this is the day, the day, the day of all days for Israel, and according to Daniel, her Messiah would come, lowly, riding on a donkey's colt. Wow. Powerful. You better believe it. Practical and personal, don't miss it. You're out there and you're thinking, "Ah, you know, I've been praying this prayer forever. I've been praying for my beloved unbeliever and and, and it just doesn't seem like they're getting any closer to God. Are they ever going to come to know the Lord? Don't stop praying. Because God is counting the days. You say, "Ah, You know, I've I've been praying about this situation and, 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 you know, this breakdown in in relationship that is going on, and and I just don't see any hope of reconciliation. Don't stop praying. Don't stop being in God's Word. Don't stop being faithful to the Lord. Because God knows the day of your deliverance, God knows the exact right moment, the right second when your ship's going to come in spiritually and it's not going to happen 173,879 days it's going to happen 178,880 days bam and you know one day we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to look at the replay of our lives and we're going to find ourselves thinking wow If only I had seen my life through the hands of the sovereign, invested, almighty God. If I had only been wise enough not to listen to the voice of fear, but to walk in faith. Now that I see you, Lord, and I know you do all things well, I could have saved myself so much sorrow, so much heartache, so many Malox moments if I had just understood that the Lord is in control. He's never a moment too early or a moment too late. Let's thank him for that. Father, I thank you that you give to us such a beautiful picture in your word of how involved and invested in our lives you truly are. And I thank you, Lord, that when it comes to those those prayer requests, those, those, those times where we find ourselves feeling like the kids in the backseat saying, are we there yet? Or how much longer is it going to be? Lord, I thank you that you're going to get us right where we need to go, right at the right time. And instead of being backseat drivers, Lord, we, we pray that instead we would rest in your promises. We would rely upon your love We would look at each day while we're waiting as an opportunity for patience to have its perfect work, that we would be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. It's not downtime. It's not wasted time. It's time you want to use to make us like your son. And we thank you that just as Jesus arrived right on schedule down to the day, So every good and perfect work you're going to do within our lives is going to come down on exactly the right moment, exactly the right time, exactly the right day. We can trust in your sovereign love, Lord. Thank you for giving us that security in Jesus. We, again, bring our prayer requests before you, our desires of our heart, casting them before you because you care for us and you do all things well.